So your book right now, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. I saw you speaking with Russell Brand a while yeah. back. Maybe it was 2019. And you yeah. were talking about this upcoming book. Yeah. And you gave it a different subtitle when you spoke with him. Yeah. I think it was Illness and Health in an Insane Culture. Yeah. What changed? The title. <laughs> Why? Uh, yes, that is Dr. Gabor Mate, world-renowned trauma and addictions expert. And yes, we sat down side by side for this real conversation. So real, in fact, that not too long into our chat, I just tossed my prep cards, something you'll hear and see in our video, something that you'll probably hear better than my voice now because I'm losing it. But let me tell you, it's no wonder because I have worked so hard to bring this to you because it is so filled with his insights into trauma, addiction, and healing that we had to split this podcast into two parts and possibly an upcoming episode where there's a part three that will share the extraordinary series of events that brought us face to face. But in this episode of Dahlia, we of course talk about his latest book and instant bestseller, The Myth of Normal Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. It's like his love letter to the world. And Gabor will help you understand how so many of your health issues are a reflection of your childhood. And not to forget, if you want behind the scenes from this chat, you'll also want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Dahlia Kurtz. You may even win a signed copy of his book if you do. But now it is time to live and help live in part one with Dr. Gabor Mate. Her hair is curly, her teeth are pearly. She's got an edge, but she's still pretty girly. Oh, oh, nothing rhymes with Dahlia. What changed? The title. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Uh, well, we just decided that, first of all, insane is a bit of a slur, perhaps, on some people. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it's not that this world is insane, it's, it's that it's toxic. Mm -hmm. So um, we also want to get um, healing in there. Mm -hmm. So this is a more, this chart is more representative of what the book is about. Okay. So I think in life that we underestimate the power of joy. Mm. I think joy has meaning and people think of joy as fleeting. What brings you joy? Joy has always been a tough question for me because I've not experienced it that much. Um, and the real question for me is not what brings me joy, but because um, I don't think anything brings you joy. I think joy is an internal quality mm -hmm. that we can actually experience. So the question is more is what blocks joy? That what blocks the joy that's already there? I mean, if you look at infants, they just joy personified. Yeah. You know, they don't nothing is to bring them joy. They just right there with it. So I, I approach it more from the other, other angle of what gets in the way of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think when you, get, when you get out of the way, what's in the way, then the joy is naturally there. <laughs> you know what I noticed about you? Yeah. It's very interesting. People ask you questions a lot. This, yeah. this is, you know, you sit down for a lot of interviews with yeah. people. You take somebody's question, yeah. you gently correct it, 
And that's how you give your answer in the correction of the question. Am I correcting? I'm simply just reframing it. <laughs> You're doing you know, it again. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but, but in a way that that makes sense to me. Yeah. You know, that's all. No, you know, that's... So there's nothing to correct, but I like to frame things in a way that makes sense to me. That's all. Well, I think, you know, that's a problem looking at school, looking at how we're brought up. I had a lot of difficulties in school because the way they asked questions, the way they taught, mm -hmm. it never made sense to me. Yeah. When I taught myself and suddenly I was doing homeschooling, I could do a year within two weeks and people will say, well, you know, you're intelligent or something. No, it had nothing to do with me being intelligent, being able to do that. It was me being able to process things better mm -hmm. in my way than this just a generalized way that they use as a blanket for everything. Well, I think that speaks to a certain kind of intelligence. I mean, to an intelligent kid, school is often very unbearable mm -hmm. because the subject matter and the questions that are asked are so limited and constrained and, and, and uh, they speak to such a narrow segment of our human experience. So intelligent children have trouble in school. I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it's very, you know, school was made, that, that curriculum, that way of doing school, yeah. that was developed, what, they're basing it off of a model from 100 years ago, and the way that the world has changed so much in the past even few years. Like, I, like every year, the changes that we go through seem like bigger changes within the course of one year yeah. than before. Yeah. It's hard to keep up with this world. Well... Yeah, the real question is, is it necessary to keep up? Because a lot of, a lot of what we're trying to keep up with is complete nonsense, you know? Yeah. And as far as education is concerned, <clears throat> since the rise of modern education, which is an industrial Germany, in, uh, industrializing Germany in the 19th century, the essential purpose of education was to fit kids into an industrial culture. And that hasn't changed much. I mean, not the essential purpose. I mean, we can talk about the purpose of education as it is articulated by people who like to who'd like to imagine that it's for some benign purpose mm -hmm. but in any society the institutions are going to serve the fundamental interests of the the dominant social structure so in this society we might talk about the purpose of education is to make kids informed and motivated but really what it is is to fit people into a, a consumerist, consumerist, materialistic culture. Mm. And so anybody who's at least by sensitive or intelligent will almost automatically chafe against that. And that's probably what happened to you. <laughs> people want change all the time. Yeah. They talk about, we want progressive, we want change, we want something. They want change as long as it fits within their narrow vision. Well, of well, well they, they want change as long as it doesn't change anything. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, yeah, they do. They won't, they won't change. Um, it's like, you know, put it crudely, it's like you want change because you want a new washing machine, you know, but the fact that you want a new washing machine doesn't change anything about your life. Mm -hmm. So that it's, the change is within very narrow channels. What do you do? Because I have done this my entire career, right? Mm -hmm. I feel kind of like um, I'm a Tupperware and you keep putting the wrong lid on me and it will stay on for a second and you can try to blend in. Mm -hmm. You can try to blend in and keep that lid on, but eventually 
explode. That lid is going to come off because who people are, if you're yeah. true to you yourself, it comes out. Yeah. And so I have wanted, and we talked about this earlier, I have this mission to help. I almost died in a car accident. It changed everything for me. I wanted to lead a meaningful life. I want to help people. I become a talk show host in 2013. I'm using my show to create good. Not only do I have to retrain the audience now, because that's not what they're used to listening to, I have to fight the powers that be in order to make that happen. So in a world where you're not really allowed to make change, but people ask for change, you're going against the grain with what you do. You're saying different things. You're researching it with thousands of hours that go into everything you do. But how do you push for change in a world that doesn't like it? I don't push for anything. I, I, I simply say what's true. Uh, as I see it, you know, and uh, if change comes out of that, as I hope it would, it will, you know, so it's not a question of, I don't set out to push against anything, I just say, well, what do I understand to be true, and how can I best phrase that, or articulate it, that'll make sense to people, and how will what I have to say resonate people's, people's own experience of life and themselves, and to the extent that I'm effective, I'm able to speak truths that people will recognize as their own truths. Um, but it's not a matter of pushing. I'm not pushing. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. You know? It may be different sometimes when you're a, a short, curly-haired, blonde girl <laughs> when you try to say a truth and have it come across. It's a different world. You know, I know that it's different for women. Yeah. And, um, I understand that. I mean, we, we do live in a patriarchal culture. Mm -hmm. But I also think that what you just said doesn't just reflect present-day reality or your present-day capacities, but it's also a memory of a childhood where I imagine you desperately wanted things to be different mm -hmm. and you didn't know how, quite how to make that happen. So I, I suggest that that resonance is still with you. We should and, be doing this, this with me lying down on the couch right now. No, no, <laughs> no yeah. I don't believe in lying down. <laughs> psychoanalysis. I, I'm only suggesting that, <clears throat> look, in my 40s, I was very frustrated. Because mm -hmm. um, I felt there was something more in me that needed to be expressed. And, you know, and when I hear, not when I hear somebody who's speaking in similar terms, I say that's good, because it means that there's something in you that you haven't fully realized or expressed yet. Mm -hmm. But but if if that something wasn't there, you wouldn't be frustrated about it. And so it's a good thing, as long as you recognize it that it's a sign of something in you that still is going to emerge and can emerge. The world does put limits and barriers in our way, depending on who we are, for sure. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that that's the main dynamic for you. I, I wonder if, to some extent, there isn't still some residue of I'm small and I'm helpless in the face of this big world, you know? Well, you know, like so many things to what you said there. Right away, one is uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, of course you can expect that you don't look at per a person by their definition. You don't yeah. define me by my career. You define yeah. me, you try to understand my feelings, where th something is coming from. Yeah. And this, this leads me to something I've also noticed in your conversations that you have with people. 
I've heard you, and I don't know if you've met all these people you've talked about when you talk about Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Margaret Thatcher, Donald Trump. Never had the pleasure. Never had the pleasure. And you will assess, detect their traumas, assess their traumas, mm. talk about it. So the first part of what I wonder, is this a default in you where, you know, within a couple of minutes you're meeting somebody? <laughs> some, some, some people would say it's default. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, auto it's, it's automatic. Once you have the eyes to see, you just see. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. You can't help but see. Well, I was doing this speech last night. Yeah. And I was, it was in support of um, women who have been abused and helping them get new shelter. Yeah. And as I was talking, I was looking into the audience. Yeah. And I saw the face of some people. Yeah. And I thought, she's been through abuse. Yeah. She's been through it. Yeah. He's been through it. Yeah. And those very people came up to me after. Yeah. And they made reveals. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about this. So many people, 90% of people you say will have addictions. The other 10% just don't even talk about it. And so I'm hyper vigilant about, you know, I need to take sleeping pills. So I will allow myself this often, not more than that. I don't want to become addicted. Yeah, but let me give you a definition of addiction. Mm -hmm. um, so addiction is a complex process, but it's manifested in any behavior in which a person finds temporary relief from pleasure and therefore craves, but then suffers negative consequences and they don't give it up despite the negative consequences. So pleasure, craving, relief in the short term, harm in the long term, mm -hmm. difficulty or inability giving it up. So mm -hmm. I said any behavior. I didn't say drugs. Mm -hmm. So it could be sex, gambling, shopping, pornography, eating, self-cutting, work. Working. Uh, you know, so mm -hmm. are you sure you don't have an addiction? Of course I have an addiction. Well, I, I have addictions, but I try to stay away from, from drugs. From drugs okay. Definitely, because, you know, I have seen people whom I love. Um, yeah, I've lost course. them to that. And yeah, I mean, I heard you talk about, and it was a gestalt for me when you were talking about being a workaholic and the reason yeah. you found yourself yeah. in that situation. Yeah. So having that gestalt and understanding that that's, you know, why you became addicted to work, for instance, then were you able to correct that? Well, yeah, I was just wondering how it works for you because... Uh, for me, intellectually understanding something doesn't mean that I've worked it through. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can understand a lot of things intellectually, mm -hmm. but I can still fall into the same traps over and over and over again. So, no, intellectually knowing it is not sufficient. Yeah. You have to work it. You have to work through the what's driving it, which is the emotional pain that you're trying to escape from. You know, unless you do that, you might give up one addiction, but you find another quickly enough to replace it. So, no, knowing it intellectually is not enough. So the intellect, because the intellect, excuse me, is very much in the service or falls under the sway of the emotional circuits of the brain. Mm -hmm. So as long as the emotional circuits of the brain are still carrying a certain imprint, the intellect is powerless to, largely powerless to save it. And the nerve bundles that go from the emotional centers to the intellectual centers are much stronger than the nerve bundles that go the other way. So it's like high-speed cable competing with an old-fashioned telephone line, you know? Mm -hmm. So when the emotions take over, they just take charge. So how do you get to that place then when you move past the intellectualism? Yeah. You're self-aware. 
because yeah. people are very into self-awareness. They go, they'll sit for therapy, you know, for hours to have yeah. somebody, you know, help them guide them through that self-awareness. We search for cures, so people will look for pills. Yeah. But the way you talk about healing, it's like the cure is not the final product. The cure is almost that journey, the journey of healing. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the healing is the journey itself. Um, but it depends on what we mean by awareness. I mean, people can know a lot about themselves without knowing themselves at all. Mm -hmm. So it's not a question of knowing about ourselves. It's a question of knowing ourselves, which is not an intellectual process. Mm -hmm. It's actually an inner present <sighs> awareness that here I am and who's here. Now, that's not intellectual. So you can be in therapy forever and learn a lot about yourself without really getting to know yourself. Is it dangerous to be self-aware? It's dangerous not to be self-aware. Mm -hmm. It's dangerous to be self-conscious, but that's something different mm -hmm. than self-aware. Oh, I have, I have cue cards here. Yeah. I never use cards, I research, you know, I do everything. Yeah. There's no reason for me to have them. Like, yeah, I can yeah. do that right yeah. now and yeah. we can just have a conversation. I never even looked at that journey, but it's yeah. just part of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of probably overanalyzing and doing all those sorts of things. So then, when we're looking at healing, when people need to, in a society where we are looking so ferociously for immediate results, whether it's immediate gratification on social media, and I'd love to get to that whole thing there with social media, immediate gratification on social media, immediate gratification with immediate weight loss, immediate gratification with this, and you're telling people you need to go on a journey to get better, they'll be quick to read your book and buy your book because I know a lot of people, they talk about, you know, this is what Dr. Gabor Mate says. So, how do you impress upon people that this is a healing journey that they need to go on to get through trauma, to get better? Ask them what the alternative is. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're happy with your life, don't go on any journey. Stay where you are. <laughs> but, but, but so many people are, are, are not happy. They're not, you know, they realize that they're not being authentic uh, to themselves. They realize that their emotional life is constricted. They know that their relationships are conflicted very often, and uh, they're not satisfied with life, and they're wondering why they miss all, this, all these resources and apparent wealth that some people have access to. Why is there so much human misery? And Or why am I personally um, in distress so much of the time? So. It's not that I tell people to go on a journey. I say, if you're satisfied where you are, well, not to go anywhere. But if you're not, then what's the alternative to going on that journey of self-discovery? There is no alternative, except to stay static and be stuck in your unhappiness. So, we've had this conversation before. Fake is the new real. And I said to you, you know, I feel like online there's this performative authenticity that we have and all of this mental health fake speak that goes along yeah. with it. Yeah. And you were telling me about a conversation you had with Jamie Lee Curtis and she says this is the genocide. She says in this culture there's a genocide of uh, authenticity so that 
this, this culture, I mean, one of the toxicities of the culture, to go back to the title of my book, is, is, is that it kills authenticity. It, it, it rewards people for being phony, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I mean, Facebook, even the name Facebook, what does it mean? You put on a face, mm -hmm. you know. You don't put on, your, you know, people have friends, not for who they are, but for what they present publicly. Mm -hmm. It's like where a friend of mine said that Facebook is like Botox for the public. <laughs> you know, because we're all trying to present a certain self-image for other people to like. Being afraid to, you know, we're afraid to be there with our wrinkles. Mm -hmm. We all want to be smooth and, and, and somehow prepared for other people's gaze. And that's what Facebook is. And then people like each other, but they don't like each other. They don't know each other. What they know is a certain image that somebody very carefully honed and concocted, you know? So uh, inauthenticity is re rewarded in this society. And mm -hmm. if you look at some of the great celebrities, I mean, it's just image, you know? And uh, we talk about image makers and influencers. But what influencers influencing people about? Absolutely nothing significant. You know, which lipstick to wear? You know, uh, I mean, who are you going to be influenced by and to what purpose, you know? So this society is so inauthentic, it's not even, well, to say it's not funny, it really is not funny. It's very sad, actually. Oh, I mean, there are, you know, there are understandings between, you know, peers, which is a different term than it used to, but, you know, yeah. like for like, you like this, I'll like yeah. that, this person stopped liking my stuff, so then, yeah. you know, your value is all in what somebody else thinks about your post. Yeah. But it makes me think about your book, Hold On To Your Kids. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how the initial attachment that we have is the, the attachment to our parents. This is obviously very important. And how over the years, this attachment to our parents has been replaced with an attachment to our peers. My fear, through my lens, through my anxieties or whatever it is uh, that I see my traumas, is because we have now uh, a social currency, a social value with all of these different social media platforms, our worth and our attachment is greatly connected to these. Mm -hmm. So the same way you saw peers sort of replacing parents, yeah. are parents and peers now being replaced by algorithms and social media platforms? Well, yeah, but th those algorithms and social media platforms, what are they designed to do? To get other people's attention. Mm -hmm. And whose attention? Usually your peer group. Mm -hmm. So I see it as a, an extension of that peer dynamic where people are desperate to be liked and approved of and people are desperate to be influencers, desperate to be noticed by a lot of people. Why? Because they don't live within themselves and they don't find satisfaction just being themselves. So it's all about how other people sees you, see you. Who are those other people? Your peer group. Mm -hmm. So 13-year-olds are desperate to be influencing 12-year-olds, you know, or 13-year-olds. Influencing to do what? Well, I mean, I, I look at, there's a story I, I always go back to, I always remember this. A uh, teenager was in her first year at university in yeah. the States. Big athlete um, in high school. She was known for being, 
you know, the, the, the best one, the student that everybody looked to, the popular girl. Yeah. She gets to university. Yeah. She's out of her realm. Mm. Life is scary. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know how to deal with it. She sees her friends posting these images on Instagram, and she's thinking, why can't I be like mm. my friends? Why do mm. they have it so easy? Mm. And one night, she, has, she posts this really nice picture to Instagram, mm. and that was the last post to Instagram because she took her life that night. Mm. And when all of her friends discovered what had happened, they said that they were looking on her Instagram and they were presenting these images where they looked well adjusted and like they mm. knew what was going on mm -hmm. because they were trying to copy her. Oh, wow. And these kids also in the background, they were telling her in real life conversations, my life is hard. I'm, I'm having a very hard time at school. But the images that they posted mm -hmm. onto Instagram mm -hmm. were more powerful Mm -hmm. and resonated with her more than the words they said when they were saying, this is how I feel. Yeah. Uh. That's frightening because I, I fear that's representative of a lot more people than we know. What a sad story, but that's just exactly what I'm talking about. They're presenting a face mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with their real selves. Mm -hmm. And then people react to each other's false self-manufactured images. Mm -hmm. But who really knows you? <laughs> who knows you, you actually feel. And, and, and human beings have a real need to be known. They have a need to be seen. And even when I'm the one who's concocting my image, mm -hmm. and then people react positively to that image, I'm still hurting, because they're not seeing me. Even if I'm the one who's creating, they're not being seen, it still hurts not to be seen. Well, this is, this is, I think, one of the first things I said to you when we initially met. I said, before I met you, the way you speak, I felt as though you see me. Mm. And I think that people in this world feel as though they're not seen. Mm. I had a man join me on my show. His name is Ray, because one day at the beginning of the pandemic, we were talking about loneliness. It was right, actually, before we went into lockdown. Mm. And Ray can't see. Mm. Ray is blind. Mm. And... He calls into my show and he talks about how he deals with loneliness. So I invited him on the show mm. because I wanted him to experience connection. I felt uh, bad for him. You wanted him to be seen. I wanted him to be seen. Yeah. And the thing that he said, and it was probably, I've interviewed celebrities, I've interviewed Nobel Peace Prize winners, I've, mm. I've had really good conversations with people. Ray was definitely my most listened to conversation of all time. Mm. Just a man who lives in Ottawa mm. and he can't see 70 something years old and he said that my fear is dying not having meant anything to anyone and I think the reason why so many people listened to that and it resonated with them yeah. is because that's how so many people feel but they can't necessarily articulate it and where that comes from is their childhood needs not being met because children have this need, they're born with this need to be seen and heard and understood and accepted exactly the way they are. Mm -hmm. And those people who didn't get that, um, they struggle for a lifetime. And it's hard for them to have the experience of being seen because they don't see themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and we learn to see ourselves through the eyes of our parents. And if our parents don't see us, we don't see ourselves. <laughs> and then we keep waiting for the world to see us. But 
But you see, the world can see you or what you present to them all you want. You still won't feel seen because they don't know the real you. So you have examples of people that are looked upon by many people. And that was Presley, or Marilyn Monroe, or Kurt Cobain, any, any you know, number of famous people who are seen, quote unquote, by many without being seen at all. I mean, it's nobody, a very lonely place to be. Yeah, well, there's nobody more lonely than Presley when he died, or Marilyn Monroe when she died, or any of these people. You know, so all the people looking at you without anybody seeing you because you don't see yourself. You know, I see so many layers in that, you know, so we talk about loneliness, which is an epidemic. Yeah. I, I think it's getting worse, this idea of being disconnected from others. Yeah. Then there's the idea, like the two sides of this, also being disconnected from yourself. This, yeah. I, I'll go back to this conversation you had with Russell Brand, and he was talking about being with his child and trying to comfort her, and he couldn't. And you mm. said, well, how did you feel in that moment? And he said, inadequate. You said, that's not a feeling. Yeah. And I would probably say something similar that wasn't necessarily a feeling if I was trying to describe something, because we don't even know how to express the feelings that we're feeling. We don't know what feeling we're feeling. That's scary. Well, have you ever met a one-day-old baby that didn't know how to express their feelings? <laughs> they cry when they feel something. Mm. They express it through emotions. And what do they do when they're delighted? I think that they can poop or do anything when they're delighted because no, they just uh, no. But what they I laugh. mean, you know, they laugh. You know, so so. Um, we're born with the capacity to express our emotions. It's not, we don't have to learn it. It's we there. unlearn it. It's there, we're right there. The real question is what happens so that we get disconnected. Mm -hmm. why, do we, why do we get to the point as adults where we don't know what we feel anymore? Mm -hmm. And uh, My feelings get frozen. That's the point. Yeah. But that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Because if, if I were to become abusive towards you right now in any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You'd have fear there, for sure. Mm -hmm. You'd also have a whole dose of healthy anger mm -hmm. that would say, stop it, get out of my space, get out of my face. Uh, you, know? you know what? I could laugh. I've done stuff like that. I've been in a position again. I was in my studio with yeah. a comedian who's yeah. well known. Yeah. And um, he started uh, touching me inappropriately, the way a guest should not be touching, you know, yeah. a host. Yeah. And or, or anybody touching anybody. Anybody touching anybody. I'm just yeah. thinking in that professional yeah, yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And rather than say, stop, say no, say, leave me alone, I said, <laughs> I laughed. I was just laughing uncomfortably because I didn't want to escalate the situation, maybe. I don't know, you know, what you want to say. But I didn't react in a way that I would have reacted had I seen him, seen him doing that. Somebody to else. That. Yes. Well, how you acted is because in childhood you disconnected from your healthy anger. Mm -hmm. Because what would have happened to you if you had been angry as a kid in that situation? It wouldn't have been good. What would have happened? It would probably would have made my situation worse. Exactly. 
so that this connection was actually your organism's way of supporting you. Mm -hmm. That this connection was your organism's way of helping you survive. Mm -hmm. So that freeze response that you described is actually self-protection in that situation. Mm -hmm. The trouble is that once we react that way, it gets wired in and becomes a default mode. Mm -hmm. So that even decades later, when you're completely powerful and you have every right and every capacity to say, stop it, <laughs> yeah. you know, or worse, you don't. You have a given nervous laugh instead, mm -hmm. you know, because that, because you, you had, because to survive you had to freeze your anger. Mm -hmm. and, and so therefore, when you need it, it's not available for you. And that's what that disconnection is all about. So initially that disconnect is protective. Later on that disconnect, of course, just makes you vulnerable or, or makes you, um, you know what, the predator, mm -hmm. they always know. Yeah. They always know, they always know whose um, defense mechanisms have been disabled. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you just would have punched the guy in the face is what you would have done. Oh, yeah. or, or you yelled at him or you would have done something, you, you, you told him to get the hell out of your studio. And you, not only would you have done it, you would have filmed it and put it online. Mm-hmm. I, I still have stuff I could put online from it <laughs> and give me ideas. Well, you know, I, I, I think that... By the way, let me just ask you, is this okay, this conversation? I'm perfectly fine with it. Okay. I, I think it's important that... I said this before, like, I, I need to take the hit for people who feel like they're the only ones, because I... Whether they've, even if they have a different situation than me, the way that I can connect to others is in that you feel as though yeah. you are the only yeah. one. Yeah. And so my whole life, and I think this is a very big part of your book, this is a big part of the myth of normal, what I take from this, is we normalize trauma. Mm -hmm. And we normalize, for instance, and even glorify resilience, and I am guilty of this too. Because I used to think that my superpower was resilience. You know, mm. I could be in a terribly uh, abusive state or something really bad happened, and then I can go and entertain thousands of people. Nobody will know anything that happened to me. I'll do it with a smile. I'll do it happily. Mm. I am yeah. probably entirely disconnected from reality and what I'm doing, mm. and I'm doing it. And I've always been so proud. Mm. that I'm able to put on this show, or put on that show, or put on this show, or put on that show. Reflecting back now, and also, you know, understanding this in the context of your book, I wish that that wasn't my superpower. I wish that when I was sad, I showed my sadness. Angry, show my anger, show all of these things, because with all of these shows that I put on, I never showed me. And that's, yeah. I think, a yeah. lot of people. And how is that for you? Uh... Yeah, if you feel the tension from that last bit, imagine how I feel. Now, as you await next week's To Be Continued, part two of my chat with Dr. Gabor Mate, if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, you can catch some behind-the-scenes videos and clips of our conversations. We'll also be adding new videos to this Gabor collection throughout the next little while. Plus, you may win a signed copy of his book, The Myth of Normal, just for subscribing to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Dahlia Kurtz. And yes, 
Of course, you should subscribe to my podcast as well, but you should also brush your teeth twice a day while dancing in front of your mirror, and I don't have to tell you to do that, right? Hmm? So, until next week, come say hi, say help, or whatever you need, at Dahlia Kurtz on Instagram. Hopefully my voice will be back by next week. Well, maybe not for the people who have to be around me more often than not, but you don't have to be around me. Go, go, just live and help live. Oh, oh, nothing rhymes with Dahlia. Nothing rhymes with Dahlia. Nothing rhymes with Dahlia.